we live in a time of great human tragedy you might well ask why discuss economics then i will give you three reasons one every human tragedy reflects itself in data somewhere numbers might seem inert and lifeless but if one knows how to pass numbers and add context to them those numbers can throb with life we can discern stories that might otherwise be unseen by us two economics has consequences it affects the lives of common people bad economic policy like much of what indira gandhi did in the 1970s or narendra modi's demonetization causes real human suffering understanding economics helps us understand the causes of suffering and might help us prevent or lessen it in whatever capacity we can And three, economics is the study of human behavior. To understand the incentives that drive us, the trade-offs we face, and the choices we make, we must understand economics. For this reason, perhaps in this time of great suffering, understanding economics is important. Welcome to the seen and the unseen. Our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen. Today's episode is about the Indian economy in the time of COVID nineteen. My guest is Vivek Kaul, with whom I had done an episode in December, summing up the year gone by. We thought things were looking bad, but boy, what I would give to be in December again. COVID-19 has ravaged economies throughout the world and has caused pain and misery on an unimaginable scale. This pain is not just across space all over the world but also across time. For the repercussions of this crisis will be felt by us way into the future, perhaps even by future generations. In all this gloom, I also want to mention a couple of things that you can look forward to. One, Vivek's new book Bad Money is out now. it deals with the npa mess and takes a closer look at india's banking system and two vivek and i are starting a new weekly podcast called econ central in which we will chat about the events of the week demystifying economics and looking at other news through the lens of economic thinking that launches later this week and vivek and i will tell you about it as this conversation begins but first a quick commercial break In the last few months I have spent hundreds if not thousands of hours watching TikTok. You might consider it an addiction and indeed TikTok always gets my dopamine going. I don't call this addiction though. I call it sociological research or even taking one for the team. I have designed a new course called TikTok and Indian Society and I invite you to be part of it. I believe that TikTok reflects the real India better than any other outlet for news and entertainment. Our mainstream sources of news and entertainment are controlled by elites who just don't get small town India or village India or poor India or even young aspirational India because TikTok has blown away these barriers and given the means of production to everyone. It has empowered people who otherwise did not have a voice or a platform and I'm blown away by the talent I see every day on this app. and my eyes are also opened to so many shades and nuances of india that i had not noticed before 
we see the worst of india in our prejudices and attitudes but also the best in our creativity and our dissent my course is unique as it will be conducted surprise surprise on whatsapp and will involve both my thoughts on the many themes i discuss as well as hundreds of amazing videos that illustrate my points i am charging rupees 5000 for this course do head on over to seenunseen.in/tiktok to enroll for tiktok and indian society my new course over at seenunseen.in/tiktok Vivek welcome to the scene and the unseen thanks amit for having me over and uh, you know what is this new course you are planning on tiktok of all the things Yes, as you know, I've spent hundreds and thousands of hours watching TikTok over the last few months, and I call it research, not time pass. And one of the you know things I've realized while watching TikTok is that you know it's really democratized the creation of entertainment in India. Most of uh, the other entertainment that we see around us is controlled by elites. Like you know, Bollywood is controlled by elites who are disconnected from a lot of reality. and so on but tiktok really has gone into small towns and villages all over the country and you know uh, made it easy for people to make videos and uh, made the means of production available to all and what that has done is that it has shown us a side of india which many of us english speaking elites never see and i found that fascinating and i started taking notes on it and i realized that both the worst and the best of india can be reflected in the glimpses of culture that we see through tiktok and of course all the worst of it is there like the misogyny and the the normalization of casual violence and all of that but you also see a lot of other things the you know more women expressing themselves and expressing their sexuality a much more political dissent in very subtle ways there's great satire great irony so i thought i should sort of make a structured course where i uh, talk about all the themes that i have noticed about it so you know what you're basically saying is uh, tiktok is uh, done to uh, content what uh, social media in a way did to news you know the tyranny of the <laughs> editor uh, as you know as we used to say only, only what the editor decided ultimately appeared uh, in a newspaper or even on a website but uh, you know with social media and with people you know having a mobile phone and a camera in their hands the tyranny of the editor is dead so you know so basically you know tiktok is another version of that TikTok is another version of that but it's it's beautiful that because even when so uh, you know the internet killed the tyranny of the editor social media killed that it was still only available to people with an internet connection and by and large people who could speak and communicate in english and i think tiktok is completely broken that i mean i see so many great videos from small villages and so on and incredible sophistication even in the filmmaking so within the bounds of what you can do the 15 second videos the cheap mobile phone cameras they're producing incredible stuff which reveals so much indeed i mean i am also on tiktok though not as much as you are and uh, sometimes it's uh, actually a real pleasure because you know you do end up laughing at the content that they create So I think you're planning to use uh, WhatsApp to sort of deliver this course. So what's the idea there? So yeah, so you know, Vivek, you and I joke so often on this show about WhatsApp University, and this is probably the first time somebody is using WhatsApp for a course like this in all seriousness. And the reason for that is I'll actually be sharing hundreds of videos through the course as illustration of the themes that I mean, so that people uh, sort of kind of understand that. And these are all you know 
as in TikTok vertical format videos. And so you can't do a Zoom class with them where you show hundreds of these vertical videos. There's really no other, you can't create YouTube modules. The only way to really do the, I mean, WhatsApp is perfect for this because it's meant for forwarding videos and all of that. And uh, my course will really happen through a WhatsApp group, which is uh, uh, where only the admin can post. So it's only me and I'll kind of run the course on that. And that should be great fun. But moving on from that, and thank you for asking me about this and uh, giving me this extra publicity. I hope listeners check that out at seenunseen.in slash TikTok. But what you and I are as excited about, if not more, in fact, we've been talking about it for more than a year, bro, is our own co-hosted show, Econ Central. It's a weekly half an hour podcast. And Vivek, just tell our listeners a little bit more about that. Okay, Amit, uh, as uh, we've been discussing and as we've been talking for a while, the idea here is to uh, uh, sort of lay out economics uh, which matters uh, to the common man in a lucid, very simple sort of way. And uh, there are two sort of, uh, you know, facets to it. One is the fact that what has happened over the years is as the tyranny of the editor has died, a lot of false news, you know, goes around. And economics also sort of gets uh, included into it. And it becomes very difficult for people to sort of figure out as to what is right and what is wrong. So in that sense, uh, the idea uh, behind the show is to take, you know, a particular topic which is in the news at that point of time and explain it in a very simple, lucid sort of way. Uh, the other thing that happens is is the fact that you know, the conventional mainstream media, be it uh, TV channels, be it digital publications or, or newspapers, approach uh, uh, economics in, in a very uh, complex, uh, expert-driven sort of a way. You know, it's, it's, it's like everyone's talking in code. And, and unless you understand that language of that code, you know, you, you don't understand what is, uh, you know, uh, being communicated. So the idea is to break that again and uh, talk economics in simple English and explain to people as to how uh, one, uh, you know, why they should be bothered about it, you know, as, as citizens of, of this nation and two, how it impacts their daily lives. You know, we, we don't really, most of the times we don't realize that a lot of what is happening in the Indian economy and even in the global economy for that matter impacts our lives in very, very different ways. And uh, we don't even realize it. So forget uh, sort of preparing for it. We, we don't even know that it is happening to us. So I think that is the basic idea behind the show. So that people who have uh, no background, or rather let me put it this, people who have no degree in economics can can log in and understand what's what's going on. So. Yeah, and, and what also fascinated me about the show is that when, you know, when people talk about economics, partly because of the reason you mentioned that mainstream publications use so much jargon and uh, they almost restrict it to specialists, partly because of that. But people think of something of economics as something arcane that doesn't apply to the world outside of money. And that's always been something that's uh, irritated me because I look at economics as a study of human behavior. And I think it applies to everything, the tools of economics, looking at incentives, understanding trade-offs, apply to every facet of of our lives. So what we will also do through our new podcast, Econ Central, is, uh, you know, talk about regular news in India, whether it's in politics or in entertainment or wherever, look at regular news through the prism 
of economic thinking you know before we begin this particular show just some information for the listener typically when you launch a podcast you first put a preview podcast out there so that uh, you know podcast apps can pick up the rss feed and like a week after that you actually put up uh, uh, episode 1 episode 1 will come later this week on thursday probably we haven't decided which day of the week to release it but the preview episode is already out the rss feed has been submitted to all podcast apps so do go over to what your podcast app you use and look for econ central econ central and you can also go to econcentral.in uh, though that is under construction right now i don't know if it will be ready at the time of the seen and seen episode but it will be ready when the first episode of econ central is actually out uh, so you can follow that for updates and in any case we'll be mentioning that on twitter now having got all the publicity of the various things we are doing out of the way um, you know before we start talking about you know the indian economy during covid which is you know what the theme of the show is tell me a little bit about how you've been managing during the lockdown what's life been like for you actually uh, this is a question i get asked often these days and uh, very honestly my life hasn't changed at all because this is the life i normally lead wherein you know i work out of home i get up in the morning i make my breakfast i write my stuff i take my nap in the afternoon and then i read in the evenings uh and obviously then uh, you know at around 8 8:30 pm i cook so that is pretty much uh, what has been happening uh, the only difference that has come in is that obviously you know i would probably go out a couple of times a week uh, and socialize so that has uh, you know that is not happening and uh, most of the stuff is uh, being home delivered so other than that my life is pretty much like the way uh, it used to be now the the interesting thing is what a lot of my friends uh, who have worked out of home in the last 3 months have realized is that working out of home is not easy because one there is no one sitting on your head to sort of do the work that you have to and two it is uh, very difficult to get into a routine at least for them because for them you know you know you you go to office and then you sort of have your cup of coffee you gossip a little and, and then your computer warms up in the meanwhile and then work starts so all these little things have uh, gone out of the window and obviously uh, for a, a lot of men who uh, have been brought up by their mothers not so well you know it's been a real challenge because when your home help is not coming and your wife cannot possibly be doing all the things so for them it's just uh, you know a lot of them have washed utensils in their lives for the first time some of them have discovered cooking i mean like a friend was telling me the other day i didn't know paneer banana itna aasan tha or something so, so yeah so that's the but yeah i mean so the the interesting thing is a lot of people have realized that working out of home is not easy and maybe a lot of men appreciate their wives a little bit more all the unpaid labor that they took for granted and, and i mean and uh, especially uh, you know hats off to all the working women who used to sort of manage their homes as well i mean so all the men are now gradually sort of i mean i don't think it's it's going to make a big change but yes a few people here and there have realize that uh, it's 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 very difficult so yeah among the many uh, sort of uh, interesting unseen consequences of the lockdown could be how relationships between the yeah. sexes change in many different ways good ways bad ways and i obviously i share a sentiment because i i've kind of been working from home for the last 13 or 14 years and for me this is like not the new normal it's the old normal everyone else is sharing in it and cribbing about it and i'm like what are you even talking about and i completely agree with you about the difficulty of self discipline though you are obviously far better at 
frustrated than I am because you churn out 83 articles every week. And, you know, I struggle with whatever little I have to do. So, you know, let's get to the subject of the show before our listeners uh, throw their smartphones where they are listening to this into the sink because they're presumably washing dishes while listening to us, which is the most common use case. That's when I listen to podcasts, by the way, yeah, because, mostly because, when I'm in the kitchen. Uh, very little walking and running that's been happening. So, and, yeah, uh, and commuting. traveling, yeah, so yeah, yeah, you can't, you know, you are not spending two hours in your car and sort of listening to a podcast anymore, so. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, the two of us did an episode of The Seen and the Unseen in at the end of December, which I linked from the show notes where we spoke about the economy in 2019. And, you know, we have done various episodes on aspects of the economy in the last three years. We've covered, uh, you know, uh, events like demonetization and GST and Pakoranomics, a term coined by Vivek Call everyone multiple times. And in our episode, The Economy in 2019, while summing up what happened that year in terms of economic news. We also laid out a pretty bleak picture of uh, the government's management of the economy. Things have been going downhill for a long time. And the COVID lockdown, of course, started at the end of March. Can you sort of give me a snapshot of, in your view, how the Indian economy stood on the eve of the lockdown? Like, you know, how bad were things? Were some things improving? Were they getting worse? Were we drifting? We've had many crises which are getting worse, like credit crisis, jobs crisis, etc. Where did we stand? Okay, so, you know, as I have, uh, you know, been writing in the last three months, I think uh, we were already pretty much into an economic slowdown by the time uh, the uh, COVID-19 you know, came around. So I remember, you know, one of the pieces that I wrote for Mint, uh, was headlined something like the psychology of a slowdown. And uh, this was late last year. So I think by the end of December, uh, and you know, when we did our year-end episode, there were many uh, economic indicators which clearly showed that the economy was not doing well. I mean, you, you could lo- look at uh, stuff, you know, everything from car sales to two-wheeler sales to, you know, investment happening in the economy, credit growth multiple indicators which would have told you that the economy is not doing so well. And uh, in fact, recently the uh, GDP numbers for 2019-20 were released. And the funny thing is that uh, the economy grew by 4.2% uh, during the course of the year, uh, which was very slow. But if you take out uh, the government's contribution uh, out of it, uh, the economy grew at just uh, around 3.3%. Now, what has been happening in the last three years is that the government expenditure has been growing at a very fast pace, and that has essentially been lifting up the overall economy. But this is not something, uh, you know, which can, one, continue forever, and two, it cannot lift the economy beyond a point because the government does not form a very large part of the Indian economy. Uh, let me put it this way. When politicians started uh, recognizing COVID-19 as a serious issue, which was probably uh, first to second week of March, uh, the Indian economy was already in deep trouble uh, by then. And uh, since then, we have only gone downhill like has the rest of the world. So. Yeah, and in fact, you know, just to drive home the point that uh, you're making in our last episode, we spoke about what is my pet bugbear really about uh, the measurement of the GDP. And uh, uh, this was a debate that happened in the uh, late 1930s. And Simon Kuznets, who is known as the father of the GDP, said that government spending should not be included in GDP. Because then what can happen is it becomes easy. If, if, if you're using GDP as a measure of growth, it becomes easy for the government to game that measure. You can just dig a thousand ditches, pay people 
people to dig a thousand ditches, fill them up, dig them again, uh, fill them up again. And without anything productive being done, the GDP just keeps going up. And then you can point to those figures and uh, say, see how well they are doing. But there is a limit to how much you can game them. Because first of all, where does the money that the government is spending come from? It comes from the people. There is an opportunity cost to it. In a great episode I did with uh, Ajay Shah and Vijay Kelkar uh, earlier this year, um, a few months ago, they pointed out that uh, they pointed out something called um, the marginal cost of uh, government funds, government spending, which basically means that for every one rupee that the government spends, the cost to GDP growth is equal to that of three rupees approximately in India is between two and a half to three and a half, but you can approximate it to that. So the cost of every one rupee spent by the government is three rupees in the overall sense. That's the opportunity cost. So that's again something that uh, you have to consider. So even if this metric is inaccurate and has been gamed in this way, that really can't continue. And we were in bad shape anyway. I mean, after all these years of talking of 8% growth, 4.5%, even with government spending, you know, being spoken of as part of GDP, is pretty miserable. Things have gone wrong. I'd also recommend listeners listen to an episode I'll link from the show notes, which I did with Pooja Mehra about uh, the last decade where she lays out that all of this really started in 2011 and we've had a decade of disastrous economic management uh, since. And uh, so my question to you here is this, and I don't want to belabor the point of uh, data and what metrics we look at to judge how the economy is doing, but in the context of COVID, it becomes acute because in many earlier episodes, we've lamented how you know data is so unreliable and what are the different kinds of proxies and metrics by which we can talk about the economy in the time of covid it seems to me that that has been uh, exacerbated like early on in the lockdown you wrote a piece about how rail freight prices oh. were indicating uh, what's going on so when someone who covers uh, economics and looks at it as closely as you looks at what is happening after covid besides of course the anecdotal evidence all around us which are mostly stories of great suffering how do you get a handle right. on how bad things are right. uh, okay so you know you just talked extensively about the gdp now there are uh, a lot of things which are not right with it but ultimately it is it, it's a measure which everyone follows and uh, it, it's essentially a measure of uh, economic activity okay so how do you uh, look at economic activity without looking at let's say the gdp number now the gdp number comes once every 3 months uh, but there are a lot of other parameters which one can look at and uh, get a sense of what is uh, happening in the economy. And these numbers come out pretty quickly. So one of the things that I sort of uh, looked at, uh, you know, this was sometime uh, around a month back in May, was uh, revenue earning rail freight. Now, it's essentially the amount of freight which is moved by the Indian Railways, okay? And uh, in April, this uh, came down by close to 35%. Now, here's the thing. Now, what are the uh, main commodities that the Indian Railways moves? Uh, it moves coal, it moves steel, it moves petroleum, it moves food grains, and it moves cement. Okay. So, if you look at railway freight as a whole, so the amount of freight moved by them in April fell by close to 35%. This after it had already fallen by 14% in March. So uh, one of the most important commodity that railway moves across the country is basically coal. 
okay now coal movement fell by close to again 35% to around 34.6 million tons in april after having fallen by around 14% in march now what does this basically indicate okay one is uh, obviously you know coal production has fallen and because of that lesser coal is being moved but what does it tell us it tells us largely that most factories and companies in india have been shut over the last more than a few weeks now and they don't need electricity okay now when you don't need electricity the you don't need coal because simply because most of the uh, electricity produced in india is thermal electricity so this tells you very very clearly that most factories uh, have been shut most offices have been shut thanks to the uh, lockdown then you have petroleum you know petroleum movement was also down uh, almost 35% uh, to around 2.3 million tons in april again explains the lack of demand of petrol and diesel now uh, the interesting thing is that uh, obviously uh, you know this is because people were at their homes and they were not moving around now the more interesting thing is that if people do not consume uh, petrol and diesel the government the central government does not earn excise duty on petrol and diesel and this excise duty on petrol and diesel during the course of the last few years you know has been greater than 2 lakh crore then you look at cement movement so cement movement was down 90% which tells you that construction activity has basically come to a standstill it is also a very good explanation of the fact as to why so many people started walking from the bigger cities to their homes you know in eastern up bihar uh, jharkhand chatisgarh odisha you know so on and so forth so the only thing you know the only commodity in which case the movement went up uh, were basically food grains and uh, the food grain movement soared by 135% and uh, this was primarily on account of the distribution of extra food grains which uh, the central government was uh, was basically distributing so it these grains had to be moved from parts of the country which had a surplus to uh, other parts which did not so you know if if you looked at just this indicator it could have told you in a very very simple sort of way that all wasn't well with the indian economy you know obviously you know common sense tells us in a much simpler way that if everybody you know is is at home and is not going out and spending money obviously there will be a problem in the economy but uh, this is just a you know way of thinking where uh, non gdp data can uh, help us uh, see things much more clearly no and this is so fascinating to me that it's almost like a piece of detective work that you find out one piece of data and it seems like okay rail oh, yeah. freight what difference does it make yeah. but it impacts everybody's life in so many different ways yeah in fact to be very honest uh, you know i have been looking at this data for years now and it sort of never occurred to me that uh, i mean i always knew that this is it's it's a very important data point but i i had somehow never sort of articulated it to myself that you know one could link it to almost every important aspect of the economy uh, you could link it to food you could link it to taxes construction electricity you know these are things that uh, we all used to i mean like electricity now without electricity there is no survival these days so and you know what is also interesting to me like what you've described about uh, what rail freight indicated about 
everything in the economy and how everything is connected is you know talking about the economy from a sky high view and you know looking at all these different aspects of it and now i want to zoom in to individuals to human beings the psychology how they think about all this and understanding how that ties into the economy now you've written uh, many fascinating pieces obviously about how psychology ties in with the economy and also you know a point you often make is that uh, what is in an individual self interest may not be in society self interest and vice versa which means that we can all behave in rational ways as far as spending and saving and going out is concerned and that can harm us all in the aggregate and there's nothing much to do about this and this is possibly more vivid in the time of covid than in normal times so can you elaborate on this sure. bit so you know this is this point was basically one of the major contributions of john maynard keynes in the aftermath of uh, the great depression he basically studied the great depression and realized as to you know why the great depression became the great depression so what he basically suggested was that you know at an individual level incomes drive spending okay but at an aggregate societal level it is spending which drives income or to put it in a simpler way one man's spending is basically another man's income Uh, so let's let's sort of uh, dwell a little deeper uh, into this uh, point so let's say uh, you are an employee and uh, you work for a company let's say you work for an it company uh, the company pays you a salary and when the company pays you a salary it may even give you esops and uh, you know you use that money to you know buy things i mean you you use that money to party over the weekends you can over a period of time once you've accumulated uh, a reasonably good amount of money uh, you can use that as a down payment for a car for a home and so on and so forth so income drives spending at an individual level nevertheless uh, you know the question is uh, where does the company make money from now the company this company or any other company essentially makes money when someone else spends money to buy their goods or buy the product or buy the services so in in case of an it company it might be a project it might be a product or yeah anything along these lines so essentially uh, you know one man's spending is another man's income now uh, what has happened in case of uh, uh, you know in 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 the last few months is that uh, large parts of the population are staying at home and when you stay at home you know you only buy things which you require for your everyday use so i mean you may buy soap you may buy toothpaste you may buy washing powder cleaning liquid vegetables bread you know butter so on and so forth i have a feeling you're sharing your personal shopping list with me <laughs> i guess yeah i mean it, it it would be anyone's shopping list summit so you don't buy vegetables <laughs> No, no. Of course, of course. I was just kidding about how poor Vivek is having to do everything yeah, himself. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, so you do this, but when you are at home, you don't go out. So you know, you're not spending in restaurants. You're not going to malls. You're not watching movies. Uh, you're not buying new clothes, and and so many other things. Like in my case, uh, for almost two week, uh, two months, I did not uh, buy many books. I mean, all the books that I bought uh, were basically bought on Kindle. so obviously when this happens at the societal level it impacts the incomes of many other individuals so incomes go down okay it also impacts many businesses so businesses when they have to survive uh, through this uh, pandemic 
uh, have uh, a lot of them have fired people a lot of them have cut salaries a lot of them have withdrawn uh, new offers uh, and uh, a lot of them have postponed uh, dates of uh, joining of people who were supposed to join so all of this has an impact on the incomes of uh, people which in then turns has an impact on consumption and which again in turn has an impact on income and which in you know turn again has an impact on consumption so this is how the cycle works now what also has happened and in fact i you know this was already happening you know i was earlier calling it uh, the psychology of a slowdown and now you know i'm calling it the psychology of a recession now the difference between a slowdown and a recession is very simple a slowdown is essentially an economic environment where the economy is growing but it's growing at a low growth rate whereas a recession is an environment where the economy contracts for two consecutive quarters so which is basically a period of 6 months in total so we are not there uh, but we'll we'll get there uh, by september by september we can officially say that india was in a recession for the first half of 2020-21 but unesco may well proclaim it as the best recession in the world so we <laughs> uh, yeah which they might for all we know uh, you know so yes so what will happen over uh, the next few months and, and and it's already in progress is that all of us will eventually come to know someone who's lost his job or has faced an income cut at his job or uh, you know is running a small enterprise which is not doing well or is running a small enterprise which has gone bankrupt uh, so on and so forth so basically in a recession people who are directly impacted by the recession obviously cut down on their consumption i mean they don't have any other way out but people who are not impacted by the uh, recession also cut down on their consumption because they have this great fear of being fired or uh, seeing a drop in their income so everyone starts uh, sort of preparing for that uh, you know bad day which might come and when that happens again you know spending takes a beating and then you know it impacts incomes and then it impacts spending again and then more people are fired and and you know this is how uh, you know a recession sort of spreads and i think this is precisely uh, what is happening right now and it will continue to play out uh, at least for the you know for the first half of this financial year so Yeah, and the interesting thing that strikes me uh, about this very profound insight is that, yeah, on the one hand, it's obvious that people who have lost their jobs and people whose businesses have shut down will obviously not be spending more, and therefore, because they are not spending, others are making less income, and the vicious cycle begins. But what is also happening is even people who do have their jobs still, whose businesses haven't been affected, even they will go a little easy on the spending, and they'll be like, "Let's take it easy." So the spending going down is not just because there's a lockdown and people can't go out. It's not just because jobs have been lost or uh, companies are shut down. But even after the lockdown ends, people will go out less, and perhaps correctly so. Perhaps and not perhaps, but rationally so, uh, they should go out less for the next few months. In fact, uh, so if if you were to look at uh, what you need to do in order to eat in a restaurant, I mean the rules that have been put in place. I mean you would never go out. I mean you'd rather sit at home and eat. <laughs> Yeah, and even otherwise, you know, and, and so the thing is, and even with people who go out as much as they used to, their discretionary spending, the stuff they don't absolutely need to buy, will go down a bit because they'll be more aware that they could be, you know, uh, rainy days up ahead. Not in a literal sense, of course, because rainy days are ongoing as we both of us are in 
Mumbai. In fact, uh, the interesting thing is, and when I first sort of came to know of this, I was quite surprised. If you look at, you know, a lot of these uh, analysts, they are also talking about the fact that uh, FMCG companies might see a contraction in revenue this year, which is essentially unheard of. Uh, So what that means is that discretionary expenditure will definitely be impacted. That is a no-brainer. But even non-discretionary expenditure will be impacted. And one clear indicator of that is that people are already buying smaller packs of different things. I mean, that, uh, you know, that news has, has, has come around a few weeks back. Wow, that's so interesting and almost so sad, you know, that in all these economic numbers, if you look closely and use your imagination, you also get pictures of individual human suffering and even the way minds cloud over that you become less optimistic and then that pessimism just sort of reaches out and becomes more numbers because you are spending less, others are earning less and everything is rational. Now, tell me, you've described this vicious... This is, you know, it's, it's time for a poor joke, Amit, so... Tell me the poor joke. So you have all this, you know, I tweeted about this a few days back. So you have all these be positive walas going around, right? People keep telling you it's time to be positive, be positive. So so basically my take is that, you know, all the be positive blood group guys should now become C positive. Because only if you see positive can you be positive. So this is like, it's in your zone, Amit. So it's better than the ones you crack. It's horrendous. This is adding insult to injury. First, you injure me with that terrible joke and then you insult me by saying it's in my suit. <laughs> your PGS are legendary, no? So this is also a legendary PGS. Indeed. Uh, here's my question. Uh, you've described this vicious circle really well. How can it be broken in theory or in practice? Like in the past, what has broken such uh, uh, vicious cycles typically? So, you know, in the Indian case, we have uh, very little... Uh, experience of going through a recession. The last full-fledged recession was in 1979, which uh, was also the year of the second global oil shock. Between 1960-61 to this financial year, I mean, assuming we the growth contracts this financial year, India has seen a growth contraction just five times, and the last time we saw growth contraction was 40 years back. Uh, even in 1991-92, when the economy did terribly, we did grow. So, in you know, there is very little experience of how to get out of uh, a recessionary uh, environment, at least uh, in India. Uh, now, if I were to sort of talk, uh, you know, go back to the Great Depression, because, you know, that is by far the best example. Uh, uh, the countries in the West started coming out uh, of the Great Depression only at the time, you know, when they started preparing for the Second World War. Now, uh, you know, if if you look at uh, the example of uh, the United Kingdom, uh, it was only when they started taking Hitler's threat seriously and and then they started sort of, you know, making arms in in, in the southern part of the country. Uh, That is when they started uh, coming out uh, out of the Great Depression. In the U.S. case, some of it happened when... uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt uh, came up with the New Deal, and 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 but then the U.S. also sort of uh, started coming out of uh, the recession only around the time the Second World War started. So the point here is that, and this is what you know, Keynes' insight was, and Keynes' insight was in an environment where the private part of the economy is not spending, when individuals are not spending, uh, when private corporations are not spending. 
the government has to become the spender of the last resort or the government has to become the employer of the last resort and you know keynes uh, also uh, you know he was great at rhetoric so and he rhetorically even suggested that uh, the government should essentially pay people to dig holes and fill them up and the money that they earn doing that they would go out and spend and you know the economy would come out of a recession now this is something that uh, you know this was an insight which politicians you know Uh, loved and they ran with uh, because up until the second world war the government used to largely run on balanced budgets okay they only spent as much as they earned now uh, here was an economist saying that it is fine to spend more money than you earn and politicians loved that insight but what keynes had also said was that the government should run surpluses during good years and then they should use those surpluses during bad years now obviously the politicians just took you know one part of the argument and uh, they ran with it now uh, to to sort of talk about this in the indian context so right now it is important that uh, the government puts money in the hands of people and and they have done that by uh, you know through the putting money in the jandhan accounts of women uh, they have also brought forward the payments of pm kisan and stuff like that but these are very small amounts okay now you know the large fiscal expansion as has been demanded by corporate india and you know one gentleman uh, i think it was one of the builders who even went on to suggest that the government should spend anywhere from 200 billion dollars to 300 billion dollars i mean uh, that's like a astonishingly huge amount of money uh, which is uh, 200 billion dollars would be close to uh, not 10% of the indian gdp but around 7-8% of the indian gdp Uh, so the question is you know where does the government get that money from and especially in an environment where tax collections have totally crashed so that is you know and given the fact that you know as we discussed we were already in a bad shape so so to sort of give you uh, you know the last year's uh, budget the government had hoped to earn uh, close to 24.6 lakh crore in gross tax revenues okay the central government the revised number when the budget for this year was presented in february the number was then revised to rupees 21.6 lakh crore what the government finally ended up earning was rupees 20.1 lakh crore so you know you started at close to 25 lakh crore and you ended up at 20 lakh crore that in itself tells you how one is you know your assumptions have gone all wrong and two it is a reflection of the sad state of the economy because you know ultimately only if the economy is doing well will people consume so if people will consume then the government will earn gst if people will earn money the government will earn income tax in various ways and uh, when people consume companies will produce so the government will earn excise duty so it is all linked so when the government rather when we entered into covid 19 the government finances were already in a mess so in that sense they really couldn't you know do what or they really can't do what keynes's theory basically suggests and uh, yeah so i guess that's the long and the short of it and i mean i'll get into so, a lot more detail on this as we go along so so you know taking on from this i have both a quick digression for my listeners and three questions for you mm-hmm. vivek the quick digression for my listeners is that uh, you know when uh, vivek was talking about 
the Great Depression and the conventional thinking behind it that, you know, government spending helped them sort of come out of it. There is a very interesting book that I would highly recommend by the great writer Amity Schles called The Forgotten Man, which chronicles those years and would also make you question that conventional point of view. Uh, so you should pick that up. I'll link it from the show notes. I have sort of three questions for you. Question one is this, that when we talk about putting money in the hands of the people, isn't the easiest way to do that just simply uh, taking less from them? That is in terms of taxes, that first of all, to begin with, you are taking money from everybody, not just people who pay income tax, by the way, every Indian pays taxes, even the beggar at the traffic signal pays taxes, even your domestic help, they pay taxes when they buy salt or when they buy a sachet of soap. So everyone pays taxes. So what we really do is we take taxes from everyone and then we give some of it back and say, hey, we are putting money in your hands. Uh, why not leave some of it with them? Is that something that makes sense? Oh, to of you? course. So, you know, one of the things that uh, happened in September last year was that the government cut uh, the corporate income tax rate uh, majorly. And uh, while I understood, you know, the reasoning behind why they did that, you know, they essentially wanted Indian corporates to be uh, able to compete with, uh, you know, companies which operate outside India. But I think what they should have actually done at that point of time was cut income tax rates and put more money in the hands of people. Now, uh, you know, the uh, conventional argument against this point is that but how many people pay income tax, uh, which is true. A large section of Indian population does not pay income tax. But the point is that, you know, it is the people, uh, you know, who pay income tax have a lot of purchasing power in this country, right? I mean, they're basically the best of the lot. So when you put money in their hands, the chances that they'll go out and spend that money are a lot better. And as, uh, you know, I said earlier, you know, ultimately one man's spending is another man's income. And so that would have had uh, some sort of a multiplier effect on the Indian economy and uh, would have helped us in some way. And it would have also helped the government, because, you know, what you essentially, you know, you lose out in the form of uh, tax that you collect per individual, you more than make up uh, for it in other ways. So when you, when people consume more, uh, your chances of earning uh, goods and services tax goes up. When people consume more, companies produce more. So your chances of earning excise duty go up. You know, so it, it would have sort of made sense at that point of time to cut uh, uh, the income tax, personal income tax rate, but that wasn't really done. Now, so one of the pieces I had recently written for the Mint, and uh, you know, in that I had essentially suggested that uh, you know the government should cut the GST rate on uh, automobiles uh, by ten percent. I mean, that would be a good chunk that would lead to you know prices coming down majorly, and the chances of you know people buying. Uh, you know, more automobiles at a lower price are, are significantly better. And again, what the government would have lost in terms of the GST it collects per vehicle, it would have more per unit sale of per vehicle that is sold, it would have more than made up for it, you know, in terms of volume. Also, what would have happened is that, you know, there would have been this uh, huge multiplier effect. You know, automobile companies don't make everything on their own. I mean, there are auto ancillary units. So, you know, like car steerings would probably be made by some other company. Tires would come from someone else. Steel would come from someone, some other company. Rubber would come from some other company, so on and so forth. I mean, I'm not a automobile expert, but, you know, this is generally what I understand. So once you get the auto sector going, you also get the auto ancillary sector going. So there are huge what economists call backward linkages. 
then uh, you know the auto uh, ancillary sector employs a lot of contract workers so that would have helped their incomes would have gone up you know vis-a-vis the situation now and i mean then they would have consumed it would have impacted gst and so you know so so this i think is a good way of quickly putting more money into the hands of uh, people and getting a large manufacturing sector going and the multiplier effects again will be very decent in this case but i don't know whether this will you know i don't see this happening really so. yeah my other two questions are kind of related so i will kind of ask them together that when we talk about putting money in the hands of people and that helping now you know however we choose to do that whatever the mechanics of that is my question is but twofold number one is that will it really help if they don't go out and spend it and partly they may not go out and spend it because they can't because there is still a part lockdown and so on and partly they may not go out and spend it because they are pessimistic and because there is so to say a mental lockdown and a rational and justified one uh, that's uh, yeah in fact you go with this first and then i'll go right. to the next so one. i think you know it's a very valid point and i really don't have a straightforward answer for it but what i can uh, say is that you know this is a risk essentially worth taking for the government uh, in fact there's a beautiful line in this book that i uh, read recently called radical uncertainty by john k and mervin king both uh, famous british economists uh, i mean john k was a one of the most widely read columnists of the financial times and you know a very well known economist and mervin king was uh, the governor of bank of england and uh, there is a very you know this is there's a brief line in that book which says that real governments do not optimize they cope okay and i think this is just the time to do that you know you have to sort of take some of these decisions which you know what what you call a calculated risk basically so i think it's a calculated risk and uh, see anyway they are not making any money out of you know gst and vehicle sales so this is something that can be tried and uh, you know i think it should work so and see there are no you know in, in economics that's what makes economics uh, so interesting and that's why so many economists get it wrong when they forecast things because you know ultimately economics is not something where you can actually carry out an experiment in a lab i mean it's it's all out there in the real world so yeah and also you think probabilistically so just because you say something has a 55% chance of happening and the other thing happens that doesn't mean you were wrong uh you know the world is probabilistic and that's how it goes and that's a lovely quote and you know it reminds me of that old cliche about not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good and it strikes me that one reason that governments can't optimize and have to cope is because of state capacity constraints and all that how much can you do what can you do within the bounds of that what is worth trying you know and uh, you need to think probabilistically about that though i think the objection per se that people won't go out and spend seems to me to be to have a certain amount of validity to it my yeah, third question here from- the, the, here's the thing amit you know uh, the i'll and i'll answer this uh, question in 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 slight uh, detail see ultimately you know the problem uh, is that a lot of uh, people uh, speak about uh, uh, economics and the solutions it has to offer in a very confident sort of way okay but that does not mean that economics has all the solutions you know and especially in an indian case uh, you know the, the the problem is that we have been brought up uh writing exams where there is a right answer and a wrong answer right but life is not like that you know there are 
right answers which can become wrong answers and there are wrong answers which uh, can become right answers so you know i mean i'm just i mean i won't go into detail here but uh, if anyone wants to understand what i just said in a little more detail uh, they should try reading ram gopal verma's uh, book called guns and thighs he explains this very very beautifully in that book and the example that he uses is that that of a cousin of his who uh, basically did all the thinking and opened up a liquor shop and his thinking seemed all you know when when they sort of were thinking about the entire thing it just seemed like a beautiful thing to do but when he opened it it just bombed whereas ram gopal verma opened a video rental shop without really thinking and it just took off so the point i'm trying to make here is that you know economics does not have all the solutions i mean and it's just that a lot of economists talk about solutions in a very confident sort of way and people are looking for solutions so and this is a complaint that i you know get regularly on twitter that aap solution nahi batate lekin i mean the point is you know there you know solution hona bhi to chahiye so very wise words and though actually i must say that all the good economists i know and many of them have uh, come on the show are actually pretty nuanced but you are right that there are a no, lot there of a lot. Uh, i mean there are a lot of uh, whatsapp economists in fact who exude uh, so yeah, much especially uh, if you follow you know these people on uh, a lot of them on twitter and and a lot of them on tv you should see see an economist economist you know someone who studied economics and and probably has a phd or something will always be nuanced but a financial economist you know someone who sort of may have studied economics may not have studied economics but has is making money out of the stock market or is making money in some way out of the financial system he has to be confident about what he says he cannot be nuanced yeah and the two points to note is that the one the field that he's done well in is actually very different from this field that he's pontificating about and two that he might have been lucky in that field like in the stock market there's something called the survivorship bias which often leads to that the the other sort of quick point i'd like to add on before i get to that much awaited third question is uh, uh, you know one thing that uh, it's easy to do with more certainty than the opposite of it is talk about what can go wrong what is a bad policy or what is a bad economic decision like it's very difficult to say right now how do we come out of this that assumption that there is some solution which brings us out of this that all problems have a solution as you pointed out is not true and perhaps are you know multiple choice questions or the right or wrong question answer framework that we are trained to think in in school is responsible for us thinking that way but it is possible to point out with great certainty what is a wrong policy to take for example you know uh, nehru's great fan uh, narendra modi is you know uh, replicating many of nehru's economic ideas in fact he's you know leaving aside nehru's good ideas and replicating the bad ones like import substitution in this whole boycott china nonsense and that i think any economist can confidently say it's it's rubbish it's, it's just going down the wrong path because we have all the lessons of history to teach us that but we'll discuss that later you know after we take the break and all that while we are still on the thread of putting money in the hands of people such a delightful thought um my final question based on that is that 
uh, one objection that is sometimes raised to that is that look you can put money in the hands of people but what the lockdown has also done is that is disrupted if not destroyed supply chains of companies throughout the country and therefore if there aren't the number of goods and services out there are much less so even if you put more money in the hands of people even if they can overcome all the you know the psychological barriers it's just that there are less businesses out there and less things being sold out there especially in the non discretionary yeah, space yeah i mean so again you know the answer to this question was will be the same as the last question i mean ultimately there are things that you can try and i mean if they don't work they don't work i mean what do you do about it and this again you know this again is also a reflection on our limited state capacity uh, it is also a reflection on how uh, you know how we implement things like uh, you know the difference between essential and non essential okay so i find this extremely fascinating you know someone should sit and uh, i mean it would make for a wonderful satire on 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 the indian economy that okay now i mean i'll give you a very brief example uh, what is essential is is my kirana shop guy he's essential okay but what is non essential is the uh, tempo in which Uh, stuff will be delivered to him from the distributor okay so how is he going to supply right he will eventually run out of stuff and which is precisely what happened in the first few weeks where they tried to figure out the difference between what is essential what is non essential and then they tried to issue a pass and and then they finally said okay let all trucks move uh, between states now you know so which is how you know i mean so which is also you know which is which is a big problem because you know you put money in the hands of people and then at the same time come up with rules and regulations which essentially uh, destroy the supply chain that is in place then no and in fact to add to your example you know that can go much further down the line endlessly for example oh of course i mean we can keep going on with this i mean i just popped it at the second level so Yeah, we stopped it at the second level of the truck. But the point is, if you then decide let the truck go, uh, you know, for many days there were jams on the highway because uh, truck drivers abandoned the trucks because they could not get food to eat because the dhabas were considered inessential and not allowed to operate. So if you really look at the whole circle of the economy, everything is essential in some way or the other. Okay, so I, so you know, today morning there was this WhatsApp forward going around, and I don't, I mean, it basically showed this bus stand in. Uh, Bhayendar Bhayendar is a suburb of uh, you know Mumbai the line for that bus ran to at least 2 to 3 kilometers so you know there was a 3 kilometer line to get on to a bus okay so the buses are being run right now but the trains aren't and this is when only a limited very small part of the population has to go to office so it's it's very difficult to you know shut down uh, let only parts of the economy operate i mean because if you do that then obviously there will be other problems which will keep cropping up all the time but if you open it up totally then obviously there is you know there's there's a huge other problem to deal with so which is why i said you know economics doesn't have all the solutions or doesn't have solutions all the time so Yeah, I mean, if a planet-sized asteroid comes and hits our planet, then what solutions are economists going to find? The world is a complex place, and at times, like you know, 2020, so much has been happening that the dominant sentiment in the minds of many people must be, "Hey, give me a break!" And guess what, dear listener, we are going to do just that. We are going to give you a break. See you in about 60 seconds. If you enjoy listening to the Scene on the Unseen, you can play a part in keeping the show alive. The Scene on the Unseen. has been a labor of love for me. 
I've enjoyed putting together many stimulating conversations, expanding my brain and my universe, and hopefully yours as well. But while the work has been its own reward, I don't actually make much money off the show. Although the scene and the unseen has great numbers, advertisers haven't really woken up to the insane engagement level of podcasts. I do many, many hours of deep research for each episode, besides all the logistics of producing the show myself, scheduling guests, booking studios, paying technicians, the travel, and so on. So, well, I'm trying a new way of keeping this thing going, and that involves you. My proposition for you is this: for every episode of the Seen and the Unseen that you enjoy, buy me a cup of coffee, or even a lavish lunch, whatever you feel it's worth. You can do this by heading over to seenunseen.in/support and contributing an amount of your choice. This is not a subscription. The Seen and the Unseen will continue to be free on all podcast apps and at seenunseen.in. This is just a gesture of appreciation. Help keep this thing going. seenunseen.in/support Welcome back to the scene and the unseen I'm chatting with Vivek Call about the Indian economy in the times of covid and you know before the break you did that thing you typically do problems 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 and as they ask you on twitter where are the solutions mr call so i mean obviously you and i don't really have any solutions per se though we can probabilistically point out things that may work and may not work but when we talk about sort of the different solutions that there are for what the government should do to lessen some of the pain because this is not a problem you are going to solve can you take me through sort of the different options that have been uh, proposed by many and uh, your personal thoughts on them for example recently the government came out with this rescue package where they said oh we will spend 20 lakh crore and uh, you know there was much feverish applause and you wrote a very interesting piece which will of course like all your pieces be uh, which are you've written about covid be linked from the show notes where the headline was six reasons why the fiscal package is more about putting people's own money into their hands than actually kickstarting crippled economy so uh, take me through your thinking on this yeah so you know when when do editors give such long convoluted headlines uh, it it feels like a very bus feedy clickbaity kind no, no, of thing no, no, right no 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 when they obviously don't want to get into any trouble right so so it's a very long headline which doesn't really mean anything okay so basically you know what i had written in this piece and another piece that i uh, wrote from uh, for for the mint was that you know how the government's package was uh, you know like the old uh, newspaper trick which uh, you know which which i learned very early when once i started working uh, in the media was that uh, you know think of the headline first okay this is something that all good editors old editors would tell you that think before you start writing think of the headline first and then write everything justifying the headline so the government's 20 lakh crore package was a bit like that so the first thought of this one big number large number which was 20 lakh crore 10% of the gdp as the indian gdp is around roughly 2 lakh crore and then they went around ensuring that they everything added up to 20 lakh crore now uh, so first and foremost it was a lot of people in the media called it a fiscal stimulus called it an economic stimulus which it largely was not a fiscal stimulus is basically when the government spends more money or it puts money in the hands of people through a tax cut so let me just give you a few very interesting examples on how the 
20 lakh crore number was arrived at. In fact, by the time they finished adding it up, it was 20.97 lakh crore. So, the, you know, the Ministry of Finance, you know, did really well on that front. So, you know, one of the first things that was announced was that the statutory provident fund contribution made both by the employee and the employer will be reduced to 10% of the salary. Normally, it's 12% of uh, the basic plus DA. So, essentially, this would add a liquidity support of 6,750 crore. Now, what does this mean? What it means is that I, you know, let's say I, I work, uh, you know, I work for a company. I will contribute less to my PF and that money will come as a part of my salary and that you know, I will spend in the economy and then, you know, that is how the 6,750 crore number has been arrived at. Now, what has the government got to do with any of this? You know, how can this be a part of any package, right? I mean, it's my money. Instead of investing it into an employee's provident fund, I get that money in my hand and then I do whatever I choose to do with it. Also, because I'm getting that money in my hand, I pay a tax on it, Okay. Uh, whereas which wouldn't have happened when I invested money in the employees provident fund. The other fancy move was the government cut the tax deducted at source and the tax collected at source by 25%. So if let's say, uh, you know, you have fixed deposits and at the moment the interest you earn on a fixed deposit goes over 10,000 rupees, the bank charges a 10, uh, rather, you know, cuts a 10% TDS, tax deducted at source. Now, what is tax deducted at source? It is essentially the government establishing an accounting trail. Now, if it is cut from 10% to 7.5%, what it means is that you get an extra 2.5% in your hands, but ultimately you have to pay tax, right? I mean, so there is no real, uh, I mean, there's no money being put uh, into your hand. Now, this move was expected to add, uh, you know, 50,000 crore to the liquidity of uh, the economy. So my favorite uh, example in this huge manipulation of numbers is something called as the credit link subsidy scheme for the middle income group. Now, this is essentially, you know, uh, uh, interest subvention scheme uh, offered on a certain size of a home loan. Now, what is an interest subvention scheme? An interest subvention scheme is a scheme in which the government pays a part of the interest that you're paying on the home loan. So in this case, uh, I think there are two parts. In one case, the government pays 3% interest. In the other case, it, it pays 4% interest. Anyway, so that's besides the point. So in this case, the liquidity that is supposed to be added to the system is 70,000 crores. Now, what is happening here? What is happening here is that uh, I take on a home loan and I put a down payment of whatever, and uh, then the government pays a part of my interest, okay? Now, uh, if you look at the uh, the government's uh, budget carefully, now this was a scheme which was already there in the budget. It has been there for the last three years. So I don't know why they said that, you know, we are uh, extending it for 2020-21 because when they announced the budget, an allocation for this scheme was already there. And the total allocation for this scheme in 2020-21 is just 500 crore rupees, okay? So the government is actually spending 500 crore rupees and that 500 crores has essentially become 70,000 crores uh, in the economic package. 
but that 70,000 crores is largely being spent by, you know, people wherein they sort of, you know, take a home loan or, or make a down payment and so on and so forth. Now, the interesting thing is that this scheme has been around for three years and in, in a three-year period, it has uh, benefited 2,50,000 people, okay? Whereas this year, the government expects it to benefit 3,30,000 people. You know, it just goes, uh, I mean, I find it uh, extremely bizarre that when the economy was in an okay shape over a period of three years, only 2,50,000 people uh, took the benefit of the scheme. But when the economy is expected to sort of, uh, you know, get into big trouble this year, the government expects that 3,30,000 people will, you know, take on the benefit of the scheme. I mean, it's just beyond bizarre. Having said that, the biggest input, okay, into the uh, 20.97 lakh crore uh, package is, uh, you know, comes from the RBI. So the RBI input is a little over 8 lakh crore and it basically forms around 38% of the economic package. Now, what is the RBI's input? The RBI's input is the money that the RBI has uh, put into the economy over the last few months. So one thing that the RBI has done is that it's cut the cash reserve ratio from, I think, 4% to 3%. Now, cash reserve ratio is basically all the banks need to maintain a certain proportion of their deposits with the RBI. So it used to be 4% earlier, and it's now down to 3%. So because of that, around 1,37,000 crore uh, rupees have been released into the financial system. Other than that, uh, the RBI has been buying bonds. It has cut the repo rate and so on and so forth. Now, the interesting thing is that the banks are actually not spending this money. And I mean, I haven't checked the data today, but up until uh, a few days back, more than 4 lakh crore that the banks had, 4 lakh crore rupees, were being deposited with the RBI because the banks had no uh, use for that money. So that what that essentially means is that, you know, RBI is actually not adding liquidity to the system, but is taking it out of the system, okay? Because banks are not, I mean, people are not borrowing, so banks are not lending. So in that sense, instead of the 8 lakh crore number, the liquidity number which was added to the 21 lakh crore package, it had to be a negative entry of, uh, you know, 4 to 5 lakh crore. I mean, I'm just taking the government's uh, math a little forward. So the point is, you know, a bulk of this so-called package was nothing but you know, what we would call a, a good forward on, on, on WhatsApp University. Having said that, there were a few good points to it as well. Uh, one of the things that the government did pretty quickly was uh, when they decided to put, uh, you know, 500 rupees each for a period of three months into the accounts of uh, all uh, women Jandhan account holders. Then they also decided to increase the allocation to Nariga the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme from uh, around, uh, around I think it was 61,000 crore to more than uh, 1 lakh crore. There was also, uh, you know, extra food was distributed through the public distribution system. So there were a few genuine, you know, parts to the package, but a lot of it was just uh, simply made up. I mean, as I said at the very beginning, it was, you know, think of the headline first, so the Prime Minister thought of a nice, uh, you know, uh, good headline and the Ministry of Finance then worked on justifying that uh, headline. So so I have 
two digressive observations and one digressive question and i should point out that actually if i wasn't being digressive i would be transgressive of the custom of the seen and the unseen where being digressive is common one observation of course is that this sort of advice that editors sometimes give that think of the headline first and write the piece is actually a hack to sort of defeat the mental block of how do you structure it or what do you do and that typically as an editor i would uh, frown upon people who have decided what a piece is about before they start reading it or writing it because it means you made up your mind and you're just going to you know the confirmation bias comes into play and you're just going to do everything that supports the conclusion you've already made but of course we know that and can i can i just interrupt you here once yeah sure okay uh, so i you know just i'm just taking your point forward you know uh, i think uh, as when when you start working in journalism it's probably good advice but as you go along and and i'm talking from my experience i think i find the concept of a headline very very limiting now because uh, you know sometimes the headline doesn't it just can't say what you have uh, said in let's say a 2000 word piece or even an 800 900 piece can be pretty nuanced so i find the concept of a headline very very limiting now because the headline can just say you know it can just give you uh, one point but there might be you know many points that you are making in that piece itself so well you know as an editor i would say that if there's a good editor then the headline can communicate some of the nuance or at, at least the fact that there is nuance but how many good editors are there so by and large i know that most there are so many headlines that are given by editors for pieces we write which just completely sort of miss the point my- yeah, i mean i mean i agree with what you're saying but I, you know i'm saying something which is slightly different what i'm saying is that you know when when i write so i see i write pieces of all sizes you know from 500 words to 3000 4000 words so if i am writing something of uh, you know which is like let's say 400 500 words in length then the headline works pretty well i mean i'm not there's no problem at all but the moment i write a longish piece i find the concept of a headline very very limiting because even a very good editor cannot really i mean it's it's just very limiting i mean because you know the headline typically ends up saying you know one or two things whereas a, a long essay may not be just about one or two things so Fair enough. That's a digression from a digression. I won't get into that, but I will assure our listeners that in our forthcoming weekly podcast, Econ Central, there will be no headlines. And also, you know, and on that headline point, that because that can sometimes be a bad practice for a journalist, it can also be a bad practice for a government. As in this case, my second digression would be that. uh you know uh, we keep uh, lamenting the rise of whatsapp economics uh, and the way these narratives are spread through whatsapp and all that and uh, you know i have been saying forever that this government doesn't care about governance it cares about optics but there is one sense if one may be contrarian in which optics is useful and optics can change reality which is as we spoke in the first part of the show that you know the pessimism and the kind of mindset that times are very hard and we must not spend can actually affect the economy is rational at an individual level but it can affect the economy and if you constantly have narrative spread out there that everything is sunny and everything is great and go out and spend then who knows you know that might uh, go a little way towards making people a little less pessimistic when the financial crisis of 2008 uh, broke out Uh, this is precisely what george bush told the american uh, economy i mean you know go to disneyland and and then spend money so yep 
And my digressive question now is before we get back to various solutions that have been proposed for what the government can do, various directions rather, uh, I want to take a digression to ask about a topic on which you and I have done an uh, episode together, one of the first times I think you came on the scene and the unseen, and which you just mentioned, which is uh, real estate, where you spoke about how one of the packages dealt with the interest on housing loans and so on. And the first thought that entered my mind was what housing loans, bro, because uh, the question that we examined in that past episode, which will be linked from the show notes, was that the economy is so bad and demand for housing has gone down. Typically, when demand for something goes down, you know, prices reflect that and prices go down, but the, the prices weren't going down then and they don't seem to be going down now. So can you briefly, uh, you know, for the benefit of listeners who haven't heard that episode and even you might have further insights since the time we recorded that, talk about yeah, what the hell is happening there. Nobody is buying, but the prices remain high. How does that make sense? I think I wrote about this recently somewhere and I don't remember where, but what essentially has happened to real estate is that one, that there is no demand, but there is no supply also. Okay. And I mean, I'm talking in very, very general terms here, right? So why is there no supply? Because, you know, a lot of people who have bought real estate as an investment, and I'm talking about the secondary market here, not the primary market, you know, secondary market where, you know, when an individual buys from another individual. So when it comes to that market, there are, you know, many people who have bought homes over the years and there is a price fixed in their heads. Okay. It's like the anchoring effect that, you know, behavioral economists talk about and they want that price. Okay. And because they want that price uh, and they're not going to get it. So there's no supply and, and there's no supply and there's no demand. It's a sort of a very unique situation, which economists normally don't talk about. But that's a secondary market, right? I mean, what percentage of the overall market is this? I'll come to that. So, you know, in the primary market, what happens is that, let's say a builder builds a building and he sells the initial homes at a certain price. Okay. Now, if he starts cutting price after he sold those initial, let's say 20, 25% of, of, of the homes in that building, it doesn't go down well with the people who have already bought it, right? And it spoils his narrative as well. Ki bhaiya, you know, dam kat but what is happening now, at least in Bombay, I mean, and I've, I've spoken to a couple of guys about this, is that builders are willing to cut prices off the record. So it essentially depends on how much money they need at a certain point of time. I mean, how desperate they are. And if you sort of... Uh, and at the... If, if you look at... And, 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 and in you know central Mumbai where I live, uh, apartments are extremely expensive, five crore and upwards. But uh, there have been examples of you know apartments which uh, used to cost five crore have gone anywhere between uh, three and a half to four crore, which is a huge. If you look at it, which is it's a reasonably good price drop of almost uh, twenty to thirty percent. Uh, obviously, you know the the problem in India is, and again, this is something I've written about extensively, is that there is no real estate price which is available directly to all of us in the open market. So let's say you know you stay in Warsaw and you want to buy a house in Warsaw, uh, you want to buy a two BHK in Warsaw in an old in a reason in a let's say in a building which is a decade old. 
So, what is the price? You know, unless you sort of call up a broker and then you talk to five brokers and and then you start getting a certain sense of price. And even then, you're not sure as to whether you're you know whether you're getting the right price or not. So that is a huge problem because ultimately, if there is no market price, how does the market clear? So that remains a huge problem. And also, what has happened? And you know, I mean, I have some sympathy for builders also now. That what has happened over the years is that the one, the land prices are atrociously high, and two, the kind of uh, charges that state governments, you know, have put on every real estate permission uh, has basically killed the market. I mean, it's it's again, you know, in their greed to earn more and more money from every project, they have ended up killing the real estate market. So it's not just black money and builders and uh, which are to be blamed. It is also politicians who one is. I mean, and I'm talking about the money that the state government makes, not the bribes that get paid. So the, the money that the state governments have tried to make from real estate is just uh, astonishingly huge, and that has also uh, ended up killing the market. Very, very interestingly, Piyush Goel, I mean, there was a video of the minister going around wherein he is seen asking the real estate industry to cut prices. Okay. Now, the point is, I mean, it's okay. I mean, coming from a minister, that's fine. But, you know, ultimately, there is something that the government also needs to do. So one of the simple things they can do is that in order to revive the market, the stamp duty or that needs to be paid on every sale can be cut dramatically for the next couple of years. Okay, I mean, I know it's not a huge, it, it varies from 5 to 7%. But then, I mean, you know, when the pricing is, you know, let's say even on a 50 lakh apartment, 2%, 3% cut has a, you know, it, it leaves a decently, you know, a reasonably good amount in the hands of the prospective buyer. So there are a lot of things that, in order to get the real estate market going again, I mean, obviously, a lot of things need to happen at the level of the builders because the trust that the buyers had in them has completely broken down because a lot of them sold apartments and disappeared. A lot of them did not deliver on time. And at the other level, the state governments need to be reasonable about uh, the kind of money they hope to earn from real estate. And I think another measure that the government has is that, you know, they have a law by which whatever their valuation of a property is, which is a fixed point, if the buyer pays below that, they have to pay tax on the assumption that they paid the rest, which is supposedly to cut down the use of black money. But the effect of that is that now prices cannot fall below that. It's almost as if uh, the government has set a floor uh, uh, below. No, no, which no, it doesn't, so it's not that the prices can't. What is happening now in some of the larger markets is that what you're talking about is is the ready reckoner rate. So ready reckoner rate is the rate on which you need to pay stamp duty. Okay. Now in many large cities, the market price is actually lower than the rate of the ready reckoner rate. Now what happens is in that case, the you know the difference between the market price and the ready reckoner uh, rate gets added onto your income, and you need to pay tax on that income. So what that does is it just you know the transactions in the market come to a complete standstill. So what is important here is that the ready reckoner needs to keep pace with the market price, which is not happening. Or maybe there doesn't need to be a ready reckoner for all those people who have watched Bollywood films and look at builders as, you know, evil people, villains. Uh, kindly note that we are all victims of the rapacious yeah. state. And I but, should also uh, say that... Another, uh, it's again a broader philosophical point, but I think it needs to be made. You know, when you, when you look at real estate in India, there are very few big builders, right? 
एंड दे स्पेशलाइज इन इन अ पर्टिकुलर पार्ट ऑफ द कंट्री लाइक डीएलएफ इज अ गुड़गांव डेली बिल्डर इट ट्राइड कमिंग टू मुंबई फ्लॉप इट ट्राइड गोइंग टू बैंगलोर फ्लॉप इन मुंबई देर आर बिल्डर्स हु ऑपरेट इन स्पेसिफिक parts of the town so there you have rizvi builders in bandra you have oberoi in goregaon you know you have godrej in vikroli so the point is that you know the regulatory system that you need to manage in order to be a builder is so complicated that you can only specialize in a very small part of the country and that also i mean what that does is obviously it takes economies of scale out of the equation totally so you know if you had a builder forget a pan india builder i mean even if you had a pan maharashtra builder per se i mean that would have some you know he would have a much better negotiating power when it came to construction of homes so all that goes out of the equation that's a great point and you keep talking about builders and buying homes and all of that and i as you were saying that i was thinking to myself bas kar pagle rulayega kya yeah, because and, and, you know, the irony is i just keep talking you know i've never bought a Yeah exactly that's what i was saying that uh, you know i would like to kind of inform all our listeners that both Vivek and i live in rented houses Very we cannot uh, yeah we cannot afford to actually own our own houses either in the places we live or any other place for that matter moving on to the sort of directions which people often propose for what the government can do and you know there's borrowing money printing money the rbi doing this and that and blah 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 take me a little bit through some of them i mean let's start with it's almost become fashionable now to say hey the government should just print money and the you know just on the face of it that sounds absurd to me because we know that you know if you print money you increase the money supply and you that leads to inflation and that is a tax on the poor now i just want to break it down in simple terms for people who may not have followed or studied that connection in the past that if you print money you have more money chasing the same number of goods and services and therefore naturally their price goes up who does this hurt it hurts the poor you know it is disproportionately hard on them we the middle class can manage if uh, you know a soap that was 10 rupees becomes 11 rupees uh, which is why you sort of need you can't just print money and spend money indiscriminately otherwise that would be a solution to everything now one of the things that people who are uh, now saying print money is that a we need money to spend and this is one solution and hey inflation won't happen because anyway people are not going to spend now and all of that but i would say that in the long run at some point or the other it will still happen even if you you know have a flat curve now to uh, go you uh, use that a uh, popular phrase of uh, these times so t- tell me a little bit about what the thinking is behind printing money what the nuances are and what are your personal thoughts on this i mean this is a question that i've been constantly thinking about over the last 3 months and in my quest to understand it there are you know two things that i read i found very very helpful one is a book by a gentleman called uh, uh, randall ray and he has written this uh, book called modern money theory okay primer on macroeconomics for sovereign monetary systems it's not a very easy book to read but uh, i mean in case you are interested in this entire you know people who essentially support money printing you know this is the book to read then uh, there was obviously this long document that uh, dr raghuram rajan wrote uh, that was also very helpful so i mean i am sort of you know i'm i'm still thinking about it but uh, Randall Ray's book was a huge uh, eye opener, and uh, uh, so this is again, you know, the, he comes from this new macroeconomic school called the modern monetary theory, and the modern monetary theory essentially uh, 
you know, starts uh, with the argument or rather with the question that why do people accept paper money? Okay. Now, the conventional answer for that has always been that, uh, you know, you accept paper money because, you, ex- you know, everyone else accepts it, right? But the modern monetary theory guys don't uh, agree with that answer. And their answer is, a, you know, it's, it's slightly more uh, nuanced. And I think it's important that we sort of go through this. And I'll, I'll sort of quote, uh, you know, small portions out of Ray's book. So he says that the typical answer provided in textbooks is that you will accept your national currency because you know that others will accept it. In other words, it is accepted because it is accepted. The typical explanation thus relies on an infinite regress. John accepts it because he thinks Mary will accept it. And she accepts it because she thinks Walmart will take it. So I accept a dollar because I think I can pass it along to dupe some dope, is what Ray says. But then, you know, what the modern monetary theory guys say is that people accept a national currency because the government allows them to pay tax in that currency. Okay. So that is how they sort of legalize paper money. And so that's their argument. Now, what they go on to say is that in uh, developed nations where the government forms a reasonably large proportion of the economy, the population is willing to accept more domestic currency than what is needed for tax payments. Okay, the normal case, and I mean, I'm quoting out of the book, the normal case, let us say, in in, in the United States or the United Kingdom or Japan, is that anything for sale domestically is for sale in domestic currency. These sovereign governments never find that they cannot buy something by issuing their own currency. So the conclusion that they draw from this is that in developed nations, you know, money printing can happen and it may not, it does not necessarily lead to inflation, okay? Having said that, uh, even Ray acknowledges that, you know, you have to be careful that these principles do not imply that the government ought to spend without constraint. These principles also do not deny that too much spending by the government would be inflationary, okay? Uh, So there is a certain school of thought which believes in money printing up to a certain extent, but they also don't believe in the fact that you know, it can go on endlessly or that there won't be any uh, problems with it. Now, let's concentrate on the Indian case. Now, in the Indian case, the first problem is that the government forms a very, uh, not a very small part, but, you know, uh, not a very big part of the Indian economy. So, it sort of, uh, you know, prints money and that leads to inflation. Chances are people will start moving away from the Indian rupee. And that is something that happened, uh, you know, post-2008 when a significantly large proportion of the Indian population bought a lot of gold, okay? And, you know, it was all essentially linked with the government spending too much money and uh, people buying gold. So basically, what works in a developed economy need not necessarily work in a developing economy like India is. You know, in, in India, there is a general tendency to avoid paying taxes, Hence, you know, unlike the developed uh, countries, the Indian government cannot print money and spend it in the same way as governments in most developed nations can. An excellent example here is that of the US dollar, okay? Between February 26th and I think May 22nd, the US Federal Reserve has printed uh, close to $3 trillion, okay? 
So basically, when they started printing money, their balance sheet size was around $4.2 trillion. And now their balance sheet size is close to $7.2 trillion. So they print dollars and they pump that money into the financial system by buying bonds. And the idea is obviously to drive down interest rates so that people consume more money. Okay. Now, the point that you need to understand here is that the US dollar is the international uh, reserve currency. It is the international trading currency. It is also a safe haven, right? So whenever there is a crisis in any part of the world, money moves uh, from different parts of the world and it goes to the US. So there is a great demand for the US dollar. In fact, one of the interesting stories that I would like to recount here is that in August 2011, when the SNP uh, downgraded the uh, AAA rating of US dollar, money moved from all parts of the world to the US dollar. Okay. And you know that was the irony of it all. So people like holding to the US dollar and to a lesser degree, this is also true about the British pound, the Japanese yen, the euros and the Canadian and the Australian dollars. The same is not true about the Indian uh, rupee. No one really, you know, beyond a point, people do not want to hold the Indian rupee. So what will happen is that if there is even, you know, some a sense of the RBI printing money and handing it directly to the government, the foreign money will all start moving out of India. And, you know, uh, when that happens, there will be great pressure on the rupee. Your bond yields will sort of go up dramatically. And generally, the macroeconomic environment will be uh, disturbed. So it's not really a great idea for India to print money. Also, you know, it, it's worth remembering here that the RBI used to sort of monetize the central government deficit as late as 1997. So what that meant was that if the fiscal deficit of the government went beyond a certain level, the RBI would just print you know money and bring down the fiscal deficit. But since in 1997, the RBI entered into agreement with the government and it doesn't happen like that anymore. And because of that, what has happened is that, you know, interest rates sort of went up over the years and uh, people actually saved a lot of money and that led to investments and that, you know, helped the economy at large. So uh, if the government prints money, you know, you're essentially starting to question the structure that was put in place and that has worked well uh, over the years. So this is, and then there's a beautiful argument that I think uh, Raghuram Rajan uh, made in his, in the brief paper that uh, he wrote, and this is how he put it. So let's say the RBI uh, prints money, okay, and hands it over to the government. Now, so basically the money goes into the government account, and then the government spends the money on something. Now, when the government spends the money on something, you know, incomes of people go up and uh, money comes into their hands and then they go and spend that money. And so that money lands up with some, you know, shopkeepers all over the country. And given that, you know, in, in an environment where uh, people are not willing to spend, that money ultimately comes back to the banks. Okay. And banks are not able to lend that money. And then they deposit the money with the RBI and the RBI pays them interest on the money that they deposit with it. And that rate of interest is called the reverse repo rate. Okay. So essentially what will happen is that if the government prints and pumps money into the economy, uh, the velocity of money is so low at this point of time that money will not change hands and it will ultimately end up with the RBI and the RBI will end up paying interest on the printed money. And if the RBI ends up paying interest on printed money, 
it obviously earns less money during the course of the year and then it gives a lower dividend to the government okay now banks also lose out on money because if the government was financing its fiscal deficit through you know by issuing bonds the banks would have earned a higher rate of interest than what they would earn by depositing money into uh, with the rbi at the reverse repo rate so there are a lot of these interesting points which uh, you know a lot of people who believe in the modern monetary theory either do not understand or they don't talk about it but if you read up guys who actually you know who believe in modern monetary theory they offer all these reasons very very clearly so yeah and uh, it kind of strikes me as fairly amusing that first the rbi prints money and then it pays interest on the same money you know the seen and the unseen right there and uh, you know i will of course endorse your conclusion um, of uh, saying that printing money is a bad idea and just because something works in developed countries doesn't mean it will work in developing countries but i will also add to that that i'm not even sure it can work in developed countries the jury is out on that this is just one theory among many So see I'll tell you why modern monetary theory has picked up in the last at least in the last 12 13 years you know so all the central banks the western central banks have printed a lot of money but that has not led to conventional consumer price inflation okay so which is why the mmt walas are you know bullish right now and sort of they have a market but what they forget is that uh, the reason that there has been very little consumer price inflation is because china has become the factory of the world okay and they have really you know uh, increased their productivity and driven down prices globally the second thing what, what they don't talk about is the fact that even though there has been no consumer price inflation there has been huge asset inflation all across the world i mean uh, you know stock markets have been going up for years without uh, company earnings going up i mean if you look at the indian market in the last 8 uh, years price uh, has gone up at a much faster rate than the earnings so and the gap keeps increasing every year Uh, so obviously there is inflation but it's just that it is not conventional consumer price inflation it is inflation which is reflected in the assets that you you know that you buy all across the world so yeah and they are both great points and to sort of add to the first point uh, you know of consumer price inflation not being reflected because china is sort of the factory of the world we also don't see the counterfactual if these governments hadn't printed so much money would prices have been lower even lower, even lower. we we simply don't know the counterfactual and therefore i find all of this also, you know and inflation is a very individual thing amit you know i mean it it depends on what exactly your uh, consumer basket is at any point of time i mean if you have kids Go, they go to a good school i mean you have a pretty good rate of inflation because school fee you know goes up every year the cost of educating a child all the activities that come with it i mean these days it's not just enough to send your you know kid to school and and, and then forget about it i mean there are 10 other things that he or she needs to be a part of so a fascinating example to come up in a discussion between two people who don't oh, have kids <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's get judgmental about the entire thing so yeah so let's kind of move on from you know one direction that it is often proposed the government can go in which is printing money to another one which is borrowing money tell me a little bit about uh, the pros and cons of that approach and what is the thinking behind that See, approach okay you know you know when the government borrows money the good thing is that it is setting a sort of a benchmark interest rate for the entire financial system right because the government borrows at the lowest rate 
you know, the lending to the government is the least risky form of uh, lending on most days. So that is one good thing that it is borrowing at a rate which the market is sort of deciding on. The problem with borrowing, now there are multiple problems with borrowing as well. So the first problem is if you borrow too much and again, you know, this is why a lot of people recommend money printing is when you borrow too much as a government, you crowd out the private borrowers, right? So when you crowd out the private borrowers, the entire, uh, the interest rate in the financial system tends to go up. So which is why a lot of economists right now have been, you know, saying that, you know, the government should print money and they should monetize and this and that. In fact, interestingly, it is, it's not that RBI is not printing money and not monetizing the fiscal deficit, but they're not doing so directly. So what they do is, uh, you know, there are primary dealers, which basically create the market in bonds. I mean, they primarily, so the RBI is using these primary dealers to buy government bonds. So the market has an indication that the RBI is buying bonds, but no one can say very, very clearly that the RBI is. But there are, I think, at least two central bank governors, D. Subharao and Raghuram Rajan, who have both gone on record to say that the RBI is printing money and monetizing a certain part of the deficit, though it is doing so indirectly. And which is good because when you're doing it indirectly, at least you are paying the market rate of interest to some extent. Now, the problem is when you borrow more, one is the crowding out part where the interest rates go up. But then, you know, right now, I don't think that is much of an issue because uh, the private sector is really not uh, into borrowing right now. The other thing that happens is that the rating agencies tend to follow the debt to GDP ratio while deciding on the rating. Now, in an environment where your GDP is contracting and your debt is going up, so in, when the debt to GDP ratio goes beyond a certain level, then there is cut in the rating. And right now, India is just barely investment grade. One cut and we become non-investment. And if that happens, a lot of you know serious foreign money, pension fund money and all that will move out both of the Indian bond market as well as the Indian stock market, uh, which will create problems for, you know, everyone. But having said that, the thing here is uh, that I think the lesser evil right now is to borrow money than to print money because the government really doesn't have a choice. You know, the tax collections have totally collapsed. I mean, if you look at the April numbers of the central government, the tax collections are down by around 44%. GST collections have collapsed 87% to around 5,934 crore, if I remember the number correctly. Uh, so that's the lesser evil right now. Having said that, okay, there are other repercussions to the government uh, not borrowing more money, but the fiscal deficit going up. And this is important to explain because, you know, as we said at the very beginning that the, you know, economics has, it seems to operate at a very, very high level, but it has impacts on all of us. And a lot of us don't understand those impacts. So, so you know, look at the fact that the fiscal deficits of the, the state governments as well as central governments will go up this year, right? Because they are not earning as much tax as they had hoped to. Now, the repercussions of that can be seen immediately. Now, look at the fact that the government has decided not to pay uh, the increase in dearness allowance as well as dearness reliefs for the salaried government employees as well as the retired government employees up until July 2021. So that, you know, one estimate suggested would lead to a saving of around 38,000 crore. This is the central government. A lot of state governments have followed the central government. 
and if i guess all state governments follow the central government that saves another 82000 crore now this is money that the government employees would have earned but they did not now government employees are one sort of class of employees who do not feel the pain uh, of slow economic growth much okay but this time they are the second thing is the price of petrol and diesel you know even though you know between i think uh, in january the price of crude oil was around 65 dollars currently it's around 40 but the price of petrol and diesel is still the what it was in january so which is the reason for that is that the excise duty that the central government charges and the sales tax that the uh, the state government charges both of them have sort of been ramped up so obviously you and i are paying for that right the third thing is when the rbi has printed and pumped a lot of money into the financial system that has led to the fixed deposit interest rates coming down in fact i was uh, very very surprised while writing a piece a uh, couple of days back that a two year fixed deposit for kotak mahindra bank pays you just 4.75% per year and uh, in fact the rate of interest was even lower than that of the state bank of india which was normally it's the state bank of india which uh, sets the benchmark so 5.1% So interest rates on fixed deposits have come down obviously you and I will have to pay for that what will also happen is that uh, the interest rates on small savings schemes will you know automatically come down in 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 the months to come so you know so this is it's not like only the government gets impacted or only the companies get impacted i mean you and i also get impacted uh, through all these things and if the government sort of you know decides to start printing money there is a uh, extreme danger that money will move out of uh, the stock market and it's essentially foreign money and sip money which has kept the stock market going so if the foreign money goes out it's only the sip money which is left which you know brings me to another digression which is uh, something that you know people have been baffled about for the last few years in fact that the economy keeps going down and the stock market keeps going up so in a nutshell yeah, what i have happening? an explanation for that and this is again something i realized only recently in fact in the last 3 years the stock market has primarily been driven by the sip investors so it's the sip investors who bring in money the market goes up more sip investors come in and it's a perfect what you call a naturally occurring ponzi scheme and i should point out here to all our listeners that one of the very popular episodes that vivek and i have done together is on ponzi schemes that will be linked from the show notes you will find much to relate to when you listen to that and think of the modern world in which we live especially the way the state operates so i just wanted to make one last point so all this essentially you know comes back to the fact that we have been in a mess before covid because if we had not been in a mess before covid we would have had you know still some uh, tax inflows coming in but because we were already in a mess this is sort of uh, you know that has accentuated the problem so so here's sort of one question which is that we have been discussing the various ways in which governments can raise money which is they can print it or borrow it or uh, uh, just uh, announce on whatsapp that they have it but whatever the government does to get money once it has it what should it do with it 
you know if when you consider the unseen effects of all kinds of spending that it can do including of course the unseen effect of what the money could have achieved had it been left with the people that it's been taken from whatever percentage of that is uh, uh, tax but apart from that what should they actually do with it what is a sensible thing to do here should we not cut area spending in many areas where we spend too much and what are the areas in which we need to pump money i think it is already happening i mean if you if you read the newspapers carefully i think most of the major projects have been put on hold and and they don't have the money to uh, you know do anything else so right now uh, you know most of the money is going towards tackling uh, uh, covid-19 so uh, i think uh, one of the things that i suggested uh, in the first piece that i wrote on what the government can do to tackle covid-19 i mean i've written many pieces since then was the fact that uh, money needs to be put into the hands of people right uh, so the government has essentially put 1500 rupees over a period of 3 months into the hands of female jandhan account holders so i mean their number is around 20 crore whereas the total uh, jandhan accounts amount to around uh, 38 crore i think this is not the time to sort of differentiate between uh, you know man and woman and money should have been put into all jandhan accounts and this is something i think which needs to continue through the course of this year now people will come around and tell you ki bhaiya 500 rupees se kya hota you know what is 500 rupees but then again at the end of the day some money is better than no money right and and the government cannot i mean obviously there are limitations it can only do things within a certain uh, Uh, limit and given that i think if it has the money the thing it needs to do right now is to sort of uh, put more and more money in the hands of people and you know i mean people will say okay but what if they save it and i mean it's fine i mean even if they save it it will be there for them to spend at a certain point of time i mean that i think is the only thing that will work right now and so obviously the problem is targeting now you know a lot of people have suggested that the government should put i think i was reading a comment somewhere one of these business guys said that 5000 rupees should be put into the accounts of all migrants but how do you identify a migrant right so it this is also the time to sort of build slightly more robust systems where better targeting can uh, be carried out now the problem again with that is you know you 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 go back to uh, it security and you know all all those issues start to privacy and all those issues start to crop up so basically you know the state capacity in india is very very limited and because we at uh, the government wants to do way too many things which it shouldn't be doing uh, it does not end up doing those things that it should be doing well this is a good time to tackle that and one thing that can easily be done is you know the government owns a tremendous amount of land and this is not you know rajesh jain's version of where he suggests everything should be sold and but you know there is uh, a lot of land with the government and uh, public sector enterprises and this land can easily be sold land prices can be brought down real estate prices can be brought down and you know we talked at the in, in the beginning about uh, a gst rate cut uh, essentially helping uh, the automobile industry right because the automobile industry has many backward and forward linkages the real estate sector has 250 forward and backward linkages so what that essentially means is that if the real estate sector starts to do well there are 250 other sectors which have the potential to do well i mean you know so obviously you know you would need sand you will need cement you will need wood you will need glass 
to sort of build a home. And then once a home is being bought, people will have to furnish it. In order to buy a home, people will need a bank loan. So I think it's it's very, very important that, uh, and, and, you know, one is to address the post-COVID uh, economic scenario and also to sort of cash in on India's so-called demographic dividend that we get a real estate sector, right? And this is the opportunity to do it. So I have three digressions, sure. the third of which will uh, lead to a question. And hopefully we can avoid further digressions while these three digressions are being aired. And then we'll get to the question. First digression, of course, is that I have a great two-hour episode with Rajesh Jain, whose proposal essentially was that, look, we uh, sit on humongous amounts of public land, which are being put right. to no good use. And if the government starts selling that off, one, it will have a lot of money, which will be helpful, especially in a crisis like this, huge amounts of money. And two, it will also, uh, you know, land prices will go down because the supply will go up and that will be great for common people. A digression within this digression is another way to make la- the supply of land go up and land prices go down is to reduce the sort of ridiculous laws like FSI and rent control that we have, especially in our big cities. Digression one over. Digression two is a rant which is that forget government spending a lot of money was basically recently raised from contributions to a fund called PM cares. None of that is being set. You know, it is opaque. None of that has been spent. We don't know where it's going and what it's for, which leads me to digression three. There is one area where the government should have spent money and, you know, got it right in the last three months, which is the plight of migrant laborers throughout the country. It is okay to say in the last week of March when the lockdown started that, okay, we were blindsided, it did not strike us. But, uh, you know, that went on for weeks and weeks, and that's a humanitarian crisis. It's absolutely unconscionable. And the sort of question I'll get to, and I was discussing this last week in my uh, episode on lockdowns and COVID-19 with uh, the brilliant Anup Malani, And the larger point we discussed there was, uh, which will lead to the question that I come to, is that a lot of this migrant labor hasn't just gone back on a temporary basis that when this crisis ends, they will come back and everything will be okay again. There is a deep loss of trust in the system. You know, they found themselves starving. They found themselves out of jobs and they found the government unwilling to help in any way. On the contrary, putting barriers in their way, which has led to a loss of not just livelihoods, but also lives and also hope. Many of these people may not come back. You know, broadly, from out of this sort of incredible tragedy that has happened, what do you think the economic impacts of that could I know, be? I mean, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while. And so I think I don't, yeah, you know, so let me put it this way. I was just looking at some data today and uh, the amount of work being demanded in the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme has just gone through the roof, okay? Uh, in the first seven days of... Uh, today's what? 8th, right? Yeah, we are recording on June 8th and this episode will be out on uh, June 14th. Right. So, today is 8th. So, in the first eight days of the month, 2.12 crore households have demanded work under Nariga, Okay. Whereas last year, uh, the number for the full month of June was around 2.56 crore. So that tells you the amount of work that is being demanded. Now, just because you're demanding work doesn't mean that you'll get it. The other thing is that agriculture in India 
already has a huge amount of disguised unemployment, which basically means that it has many more people than is economically justifiable. So it contributes around 15 to 16 percent of the Indian economy and employs more than 40 percent of India's workforce. Now, imagine all these people going back and you know becoming either a part of the agriculture workforce or demanding work under Nariga. I mean, what do they do there to continue earning a living? Now, one reason that they came to you know the cities from you know from from the places where they originally belonged to was looking for work, and they came because there was no work where they came from, right? And suddenly, when they're going back, I mean. How are they going to get work there? I mean, I can understand that, you know, the government can increase allocation towards Nariga and uh, and, and 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 create some work. But then that's one is it's 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 very low end work, and two, it doesn't pay much. So ultimately, I don't know. I mean, I think these people who have gone back may have uh, you know no other way but to come back to the cities and hope that. Uh, they uh, sort of uh, get the jobs that they originally had. I mean, I can't see any other way out. I mean, I have thought about this over and over again. And I don't, I mean, unless the chief ministers of Bihar and, and UP and Jharkhand and even Odisha and Chhattisgarh to some extent end up creating a lot of work within the state. I mean, and that ecosystem, even if it happens, is not going to come up in two years or three years or five years. And I mean, one is you don't see any commitment from any of the leaders uh, in that direction. And two is even if there is a commitment, it's not, you know, Bangalore wasn't built in a day, right? I mean, it took the city close to 20 years uh, to reach where it did. I mean, and I'm not talking about the Bangalore traffic here, but the fact of the matter is that there are, uh, you know, it is a city. uh, There are a lot of IT companies based out of it. And, there is a lot of work being created in that city, all said and done. So I don't know. I don't think, I mean, I have come around to the conclusion that these people will have to, for uh, whatever be the case, will have to come back. And I just hope that, uh, you know, this time around, they get treated much better. I mean, there have been some very good stories on how people, you know, employers in the southern states are uh, giving AC tickets to some of their employees to come back. Some of them have even been flown in. I just hope that this goodwill or whatever you might call it, this just lasts for a while. And I don't know. I mean, otherwise, I don't see how they are, they can, you know, make a living in these states. You know, one is that, you know, if, if you look at uh, places like Bihar, the size of the agriculture plot is already very small, an average agriculture plot, not, I mean, and that being the case, how do you make a living out of being a farmer? I mean, the reason that you moved out of that place was because you couldn't make uh, continue making living as a farmer. So, which is again, you know, I, I I'd like to connect this to the point that which is why it is very important to get the construction and the real estate sector going all over again. Because which is where I mean, which 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 can sort of again, you know, create jobs in smaller cities where people can then, you know, sort of hope to work uh, at least, uh, if not in the village, but at least in the city that is nearest to wherever they live. 
Yeah, so two thoughts strike me here. One is, of course, like you said, it's a great opportunity for those states now that they have all those people back there to do something about it because I continue to maintain that every human being is, you know, adds something to the world. They are not a burden on it. And it's a great opportunity for them to sort of revamp the regulatory system and sort of, but like you said, it, it won't happen overnight and therefore what do we do now? And I can't really see a way out. What I'd also like to sort of um, tell my listeners is that I've done a bunch of uh, episodes on agriculture which I rather like a lot and I shall link them from the show notes. You should definitely link uh, the one that you did with Shitkari. Uh, Good one, Patel episode. You should definitely link that one. That's, I think, the best Thank of the lot. So. Yeah, it's a wonderful episode, episode 86. The only episode I've done in Hindi, by the way. Yeah, so moving on. I mean, we are kind of approaching the end of the episode and in a sense, we are also kind of approaching the end of the lockdown. And recently you wrote a piece talking about how the end of the lockdown will not bring life back to normal. Can I ask you to uh, uh, sort of uh, elaborate a bit on this? Huh, I mean, see, in the sense that, you know, people are still apprehensive of, you know, going out and, and, and spending money. You know, you have parts of the transport system which are working, parts which are not. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, you know, if you open it up too much, uh, obviously there is, you know, the, the risk of uh, COVID-19 spreading more than it already is. If you don't open it up, then there is the problem of, you know, economic activity not really picking up. So how do you, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there is a balance uh, to this. And our health system isn't really, uh, you know, it, it, it just it can't really cope up with the, you know, if any more increases in the disease happen in the days to come. And in fact, in Mumbai, the uh, the, the medical system is on the verge of uh, collapse. And it's not that there are no, I mean, there are enough beds. It's just that there aren't enough nurses and ward boys, so, which is very, very, you know, which is why, again, it is, you need everyone to sort of be there for a system to work and uh, which is really not happening. So that's incredibly bleak. I, I, I think we've taken up enough of the listeners time this week, but no worry, we shall come at you every week in our new show Econ Central. And we will also discuss on episode one of that, which will come uh, this Thursday, a topic which we haven't found time for in this episode, which is this whole, you know, tirade against China, boycott China, return to Nehru's import substitution under different names and a rhetoric spread on a different kind of media entirely. What would Nehru have thought of WhatsApp? I wonder. So, uh, you know, do uh, sort of check that show out. Our website is econcentral.in. You can go to all your podcast apps right now and search for Econ Central. I hope the, uh, you know, the RSS feed has spread widely enough and uh, you, you'll be able to see the preview episode. Can I make another poor joke here? Kindly do, kindly. So, you know, I don't know about RSS feeds, but RSS is definitely widely spread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could... Uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. So uh, we won't comment. We won't make a value judgment on that. It's uh, an indisputable fact. And and so Vivek, uh, you know, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think it's the first time we are actually recording a scene unseen episode remotely like right. this on the computer. And it's so weird, isn't it? Yeah, it is very weird. I mean, it just, you know, when you can't look into the other person's eye while talking or generally have someone in the room around you it's just and you know even when you're looking into the other person's eye digitally it's it's just not the same so yeah we're actually recording via zencaster but we've also got zoom open so we can see each other and kind of pick up visual cues but then i'm doing alt tab and going to my notes and are you wearing a hairband by any chance 
No, that's my headphone. Oh, okay. Bro. Well, I just thought for a moment that you've done that Abhishek Bachchan thing and listen, the recording is going on. Don't start flirting now. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot for coming thanks, to the show. Thanks, Samit, for having me. Thanks, thanks a ton. If you enjoyed listening to the show, do follow Vivek on Twitter at call underscore Vivek. You can follow me at Amit Verma, A M I T V A R M A. You can browse past episodes of the Seen and the Unseen at seenunseen dot in. And hey, do check out my new course, TikTok and Indian Society, at seenunseen dot in slash TikTok. Thank you for listening. Did you enjoy this episode of The Scene and the Unseen? If so, would you like to support the production of the show? You can go over to sceneunseen.in/support and contribute any amount you like to keep this podcast alive and kicking. Thank you.